Recently, I've had a number of people say to me, and understandably, we're heading south so we can catch some rays. In essence, they say to me, I'm solar powered. And uh, I can't really blame them because at this time of year, some people, of course, not all people, but some people are affected by seasonal affective disorder. And they understand that the light of the sun has a healing property. We all use, and probably almost everyone here has a flashlight on their cell phone. And we use that flashlight to see. Or we turn the high beams on when we're driving on the highway so we can make sure we don't hit the deer. Or we turn up the lights so that our eyes don't get strained when we're trying to read. And we all know this basic fact that light is both healing and revealing. And it's a significant theme in scripture. The idea that God is light appears about 200 times in scripture. God is light. And so if you have your Bible or your hard, your hard copy or your device, turn with me to the book of first John, which is almost all the way to the end of the scriptures. If you come to revelation, it's just a little bit back to the left. If you're in Hebrews, a little bit to the right first John. And we began a series of 11 messages together last week looking at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. Today we're going to be in verses 5 to 10, and we're just going to be moving expositionally, that means kind of almost verse by verse in a sense, right through the book together. And we talked last week about how the Apostle John, who was nicknamed one of the sons of thunder, who was an unloving guy, who was an arrogant guy, was transformed because he spent about three years at the University of Jesus. And he was filled with the spirit in the decades subsequent to that. Jesus reshaped his life. He redirected his life. And we're going to see this remarkably changed individual unveiled in the book of first John. And in this first chapter of first John, Jesus and the real Jesus is on full display. John is introducing us to God in those first four verses. We looked last week and he said, hey, I was an eyewitness to all of this stuff. And he established his credibility as an eyewitness. And he writes about the real Jesus. And he said, there's some heretical movements popping up around. And I want you to know that Jesus, even though we're not going to understand this, is 100% God and 100% human. He's the incarnate one. And Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And in the rest of this chapter, in chapter 1, he continues to introduce us to God. And as I read verses 5 to 10, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Incredibly important message. 
If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. We've been singing about these incredible truths this morning. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. I want you to understand clearly, if you don't know this about this church, that UDAC is a Bible-believing, Bible-studying, Bible-teaching church. And the thing you're going to find about the Scriptures is that the Scriptures are for you, but they're not primarily about you. They're about who God is. They're about what His plan for each person is. And so in verse 5, he says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Absolutely none. Very important concept to get locked into your mind. And it's interesting because in Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible, the very first creative act of God in verse 3 is he says, let there be light. In the last chapter of the Bible, 66 books later, in Revelation chapter 22, where Jesus has returned, it says that God will give light and there will be no more night. And we just sang about that in the last song that we were singing about. In heaven, there will be no more darkness, no more pain, no more tears, no more sin, no more inappropriate motives. There will be light, the God of light. And the same God who made the physical world made the spiritual world. So when you look at the physical world, it gives us insight into the spiritual world. This is one of the reasons as well that Jesus came to reveal the father to us. And it says in the book of John, the gospel of John written directly about the life of Jesus, also written by the apostle John in John chapter eight, verse 12, that Jesus is the light of the world. And in him, things are revealed and things are healed in Jesus. Things are revealed and things are healed. And this contrast of light and darkness that so many people are mixed up about shows and gives a sense of comparison, comparing and contrasting. And so God is pictured as light, which means God is good. Darkness represents evil. Light represents that God is holy. Darkness represents the fact that things are unholy. Light suggests to us that God is honest, that God is true. And scripture says he does not lie. Darkness conveys the idea of, dar- of dishonesty and lies. Light, as I've said already, is a revelatory thing. It reveals things. Darkness is all about concealing things. And this is one of the reasons that so much crime happens at night. Light brings sight. Darkness brings blindness. 
This is important. I keep saying this because so much of the world, so much of the world, and sadly, some Christians think that God is both light and darkness. And this has its origins in an Eastern religious mindset. And they think of God as being within a circle. And within that circle, there is both good and evil. And it's the concept of monism or pantheistic monism. And so you'll see it in shows like The Lion King and The Matrix and Avatar and Kung Fu Panda 3 and Pocahontas. Pantheistic monism. And if you've seen Star Wars or any of the Star Wars movies, very much on display, the force is portrayed. And in all of these things, they are preaching a message to you. They are preaching an ideology to you. And the ideology is that you are part of the circle. You are part of the divine. You are the one that heal yourself. You redeem yourself. You enlighten yourself. It's not that you go to the God of the Bible for these things. You go into yourself. And this is absolutely in contradiction to what scripture teaches about God. God is pictured in this passage and all through the Bible in a dualistic manner, not monotheism, mono, monism rather, one circle where good and evil is inside. God is pictured in two circles. God is good, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And so regularly in the culture, we will hear people say things like this. Well, I just want to be spiritual. This is extremely popular now. And, that, and, and there, there's some level in, of encouragement when we hear this in people, but it's not necessarily safe. Because there are angels and there are demons. And not all spirits are safe or trustworthy. Not every spirit is a good spirit. And John is saying, we believe in the real Jesus who is dramatically set apart from all the other small G gods of this world. All of whom reside within the one circle of good and evil. The God of the Bible says there are two circles. One is light and one is darkness. And as I said last week, and as you'll hear me say again, we interpret all that we see, all that we experience, all that we read in light of God's word. And this is one of the huge deals about being a parent or a grandparent. You want to teach your children or your grandchildren to be innocent, but not naive. Innocent but not naive so that they can, when things come across their path, which come across their path every day to consider things carefully and critically to know how to do that. They're innocent of these things, but they're not naive of these things so that they can evaluate the message that is being broadcast to them every day and see how it is not congruent with scripture. 
And so the reality of this is, is, is this, is that we're going to differ with people. We will differ with people. When you start to talk about this kind of stuff, there's probably some of you here that are reacting like this to what I'm saying. And certainly out there in the world, many people don't like this. And so this is why we're called, and we're going to see this. I mentioned this last week, 40 times. The concept of love is on display in the book of First John. John goes from being this deeply unloving guy who Jesus transforms, who Jesus redirects, and he talks about love. And so he says, when we differ with people, and we will, we need to love them in a radically set-apart way so that we can earn the possibility to talk to them about the fact that their life apart from Jesus is just not the best life for them. That Jesus actually is, he actually is, as John writes in the gospel in chapter 14, Jesus actually is the way. He actually is the truth. He actually is the life. He's not a way, which is what everybody else would say. He's not a way. He's not one of the com- truth, the competing truths. He isn't a possible life. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so John says, lock this into your brain. God is light and there is no darkness in him. Darkness doesn't come from him. Darkness doesn't point to him. He carries on in verse six and he asks this question in verse six. He says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And he's really asking where it is it that you're going for a stroll, Scott? Where are you walking? Is it in the same direction that God invites us to walk? And so we give our life to Christ And a relationship with God launches. And we know that one day we've been promised that we'll spend eternity with him in heaven, like we sang about at the end just before I started talking. But in the interim, we're called to live a walk with Jesus every day. We're called to say, this day is your day, and I surrender myself to you in this day. Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Because I need power to walk in the light, to walk in the truth, to live a holy life that we're all called to, to live by grace, to be a loving, in fact, outrageously loving individual, to be a person of mercy, a person who serves. I can't do it on my own, God. And we're not expected to do it on our own. Would you fill me with your spirit? And so a relationship with Jesus begins typically with prayer. It begins with surrender. It begins with my sins being forgiven. But then we walk with him. And after we launch, it continues for a lifetime. And in a sense, and this is a strong biblical image, it's like a marriage, at least what a marriage is supposed to look like. 
where you say, I do, and you covenant before God and before people that you are now entering an exclusive, exclusive covenant relationship. But after that first day of marriage, you go on the journey together and you walk together. You do life together. You fail together, you succeed together, you dream together, you build a friendship together because you don't walk alone. It's also like the image of, and you're going to see, and we're going to see the image of God as father in this book of first John as well. It's like the image of, of a father with his child and a loving father holds a child's hand. And this is so different than the religious view that was prominent in the day of first John and sadly often prevalent today where God is angry with you, where God is just waiting for you to mess up so he can punish you. And if you extended your hand to him as a little child, he would slap it. And this is not the God of the Bible. Even if you sadly, and if you have had a difficult, difficult relationship with your earthly father, and I'm sorry about that, God stands in contrast to that. He stands as a perfect heavenly father. And so he's saying here in verse six, listen, Scott, if you start to make some decisions that have some darkness attached to them, have the courage to not lie about it and say, you know, I want to walk with dad the way I should. And so I'm going to extend a hand to you, father. And I'm going to be truthful that I've deviated from you. Would you please take my hand and lead me back? And he will. This is the image of a loving father who cares about you who wants a rich relationship with you. He carries on in verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son purifies us from all sin. One or two of the songs that we sang earlier in the service dwelt on this idea that the blood of Christ purifies us from all sin. And so the question here is, what darkness do you need to bring into the light? Now, if you think, as so many people do, that God is both good and evil, when you're in trouble, will you run to him? Not likely, right? And so some people have this view that God is sovereign, but he's not good. He's not safe. He's not loving. And John is saying again in verse five and in down through verse seven, God is light and in him there is no darkness and that the sacrificial blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And he's saying to us, listen, God is holy and we are unholy. God is sinless and we are sinful. 
And the result is that every single one of us, and that video that we watched illustrated this as well, deserves separation from God and death and an eternity in hell. But God, despite the fact that he's a just God and a holy God, not despite it in congruence with it, he is a loving God. And so with all of these characteristics at play, he loves us perfectly, but he has a problem with our conduct. And because he is just, John is saying, that is incompatible with his nature. And he has to do something about it. To not do something about it would be for him to deny fundamentally who he is as God. And some people... Some people, and you'll sort of hear it in the way they talk, they just wish God would chill out, that he would just relax. And in essence, they wouldn't say it this way, but what they mean by that is, can't you just be a little bit okay with evil, God? Especially my particular version of evil. Can't you just kind of let that slide a little bit? There's not one place in the Bible where God lets it slide. There's never once where he sweeps it under the carpet and says, no big deal. That's because God is light and he is not darkness at all. And so his nature prevents him from being that way. His nature dictates that he must deal with sin. This is why the wrath of God is actually spoken about about 600 times in scripture. And so in In the Older Testament, in the first 39 books of the Bible, God set up this whole substitutionary system where the sins of the people were transferred over to the animals that they sacrificed. And they stood in the gap for the people and for their sins. And they died in the place of the person. All, and it's this incredibly rich imagery, all in anticipation of the coming perfect one-time Lamb of God. And scripture all through the Older Testament refers to him, read in Isaiah chapter 53 and in so many other places, that, the, that Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who was shed, as it says in verse 7, whose blood was shed... On your behalf. Let me give you some incredibly good news. The cross is the place of substitution for you. And he went to the cross for you. The great substitute. And so as John said in in those first four verses, Christ who was God became a man. And he lived a sinless life. And then he dies the death that every one of us deserves. And he literally substitutes himself in our place. And so this incredibly good news is on display that God's wrath against sin and darkness is satisfied. And he will not punish you because he's punished his only son, Jesus, instead. And this is where the idea of the just nature of God comes out. He won't punish you. He won't punish me because he's already punished Jesus. 
This also means, as it says in verse 7, that when someone sins against you, you don't need to punish them. You don't have to take that upon yourself to get revenge. We're in fact called in Scripture to forgive them. And as you've often heard me say before, and we so often don't understand this, forgiveness is something good I do for myself. Because I'm called to forgive the same way God does. And forgiveness is something good, Scripture says, that God does for himself. It's the same for us. Forgiveness is something good, not selfish, something good I do for myself. Having said that, no one is getting away with anything. So either Jesus died for their sins and they receive forgiveness, or they die in their sin unrepentant and they stand before Jesus. And scripture is very clear about this, that ultimate justice will either come at the cross of Jesus for Christians, for biblical believers, or at the judgment seat of Jesus for those who have willfully rejected his grace. So he's saying here in verse 7, When you understand what Jesus has done for you, it completely changes how you relate to God. He's not out to get me. He's not angry at me. He's not a dark God. He's light. And it starts to change how you relate to one another. It says in verse 7, when I walk in the light, I start to give an all-access pass to every part of my life to God. And I start to say, Spirit of God, would you, would you search my life? Because I'm, I'm willing to be honest about my stuff, my faults, my flaws, my failures, where I need to be forgiven, and how that needs to happen. And it's incredibly freeing. It's the best way to do life. And this is at the heart of why Jesus went to the cross for you. Then he says in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves, which we often do, right? We do. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, here in this church and in many other Bible-believing churches, we will speak against sin and religion. If you only speak against sin, you end up with a bunch of rule-keeping, religious, pharisaical-type people. I remind you, it was the religious people that killed Jesus. But if you only speak against religion, you end up with a bunch of sinful people And so John is saying, no, no, I want to point you to the real Jesus. And the real Jesus has an honest conversation with you about the state of your relationship with God and your life. And so the real Jesus says, don't lie to yourself. The real Jesus says, listen, I got some bad news. You are a sinful person. We all are. Maybe compared to someone else, you're coming off pretty good, but you're never compared to them. You're always compared to God. You are a sinful person. 
You're walking in darkness apart from God, who has absolutely nothing to do with darkness because God is light. And my father, who is a just God, who is a holy God, as I am, has a problem with that. But the good news is, that's why I came. I came, I lived without sin, Jesus says. I died a substitutionary death in your place, and you can be forgiven. But if you don't, he's saying in verse 8, if you lie to yourself and you do not accept the bad news about you, you're lying to yourself and you think you don't need the good news. And you're living in la-la land. Verses 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. We say we haven't lied, haven't sinned. We're calling God a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. And so John is saying, and this is established all through scripture, sin is not just an action. Sin is a condition. We are born with a sinful nature. The technical term is it's imputed to us. We're born in that condition, and it includes our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our motives, the whole shooting match. And so just to give a practical illustration, if a husband is abusive to his wife, which is a horrible thing, that is an overt sin of commission. It's an action like that. But if another husband doesn't come home at night, and just goes out with his friends all the time and doesn't spend any time with his wife and his kids, that's a sin of omission. Not doing the things they know they should do, the things that are right. In essence, it's anything that breaks the heart of God. And so our typical reaction to these things, because we love to rationalize and say we're a special case, is we either outright deny we've done it, we lie to ourselves, and we try to call God a liar, or we partially confess, just, you know, 75% of the way, but not the whole way. Or we make an excuse, I did it, but it's someone else's fault. Or I'm inclined that way, you know, like I'm an extrovert, and so I like to set people on fire and hurt them or whatever. And some of that explains, but it doesn't need to define us. And so John says, let me give you this incredibly wonderful promise from God. If we confess, and basically what confession is, is just agreeing with God. It's not arguing with God. It's not trying to lessen what God is pointing out in our life. You're just saying, you're spot on God when you see that it's wrong and it's in my life and I have no excuse. I own my stuff. Confession means I agree that it has to stop. And you can talk to him. 
He's not busy somewhere else. He's not preoccupied like we always are. And you can be honest with God. And God is always faithful, it says in verse 9. He's also faithful and he's also always just. He always has pure motives. He never abandons you. He never neglects you. He never abuses you because God is light. He's not darkness. He never harms you. Now, some of you are sitting there or you're watching online and you're thinking to yourself, you know, but Scott, I've done some pretty shameful things. The promise of God is this. He is faithful and just. And he looks, when he looks at you, he looks at the cross. He doesn't look at you. He looks at the fact that he punished Jesus instead of you. And he is not angry with you. And I say this again because so many people are mixed up. God is light and not darkness. He is not good and evil. He's just good. He is, and some people think this, he's safe, but he's dangerous. And friends, that is just religious nonsense. There may be some consequences that attach to your choices, but there is never punishment for your sin. Because if you are a biblical believer and you have surrendered your life to Christ, Jesus dealt with your sin in full on the cross. And to believe otherwise, listen to me carefully here, to believe otherwise is to diminish the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you. To try and cheapen it. To try and uh, make it like something you can understand. And this is our arrogance rearing its head. Your sins are forgiven by his grace. Every, in every other religious system says, oh, no, no, no. You need to earn your forgiveness. Hopefully, maybe could happen if you do enough good things and here's our list of things you've got to do hopefully our version of God will find you acceptable at the end of the day and so either you have to reincarnate or you have to pay off your karmic debt or you need to go to a holy place and then wear a white hat at the end of it as a biblical believer in stark contrast exactly the opposite Jesus says You are fully forgiven by grace, unearned, undeserved, a gift from God. Well, then someone says, well, Scott, uh, what's to keep me from just cutting loose and just sinning, you know, till no end? John is saying here in these five verses, six verses, if you actually know that God loves you, and you sincerely, in response, love him, you don't want to walk away from him. When you fail or stray, you want to confess that to him. 
He draws you. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin. And you want to be forgiven. And you want to be reconciled with him. And what holds the relationship together is not fear, but love. In fact, in chapter 4 of 1 John, he says, perfect love casts out fear. So now, because I sit with people, I know that a lot of Christians will, okay, they might intellectually accept the fact that they're forgiven. And so some of you are here this morning or you're watching online and you're saying, yes, I believe that, Scott, but I still feel dirty. I feel defiled. And that's, Scott, because of the sins I've committed or because of the sins that have been committed against me. So if you have been, say, assaulted or something horrible like that, for which I am so sorry that happened to you, you might say to me, it's like a stain on my soul. And so sometimes I sit with people and I see that in their eyes. And these two verses, beautiful verses, because Jesus says, let me take that for you. Let me take that for you. And I will scrub your soul clean. Because it says there in verse 9, not only is he forgiving you, but he goes one step further and he cleanses you. He scrubs you clean from all unrighteousness. He forgives and he cleanses. He removes the stain from your soul. And, and if you can get these things clear in your mind and actually believe them, to believe what you have believed. This is, this is just foundational stuff that many people struggle with because what you'll understand then is that I live from my identity in Christ, not for it. Did you hear what I just said? It changes how you approach life completely. I live from my identity who I am in Christ, not for it. It's that whole, am I going to earn my salvation when I'm living for it versus I've received my salvation and my life change and my redirection from Christ. My identity in Christ comes from him. I'm not living for it. And so Jesus says to you, I will cleanse you and you are clean. You know, in the Old Testament, they had something called the mikvah. And uh, Orthodox Jews will still practice this. It's, it's, a, it's a pool, this small pool that you would go through to ceremonially clean yourself or ceremonial, ceremonial, ceremonially clean your hands. And I've been to Israel a couple of times and I've, I've gone through some of them. I've just walked just to experience. I've walked through some of these pools, especially when they would go into the temple. And it's not that deep, but you walk through the mikvah so that 
the imagery of the Old Testament, again, just like the sacrifice of the animals pointed to the perfect land, the mikvah points to the lamb who cleanses us. And so Jesus says, try to get this image in your mind. I cleanse you. I mikvah you. I release you. No matter what you've done, no matter what anyone else has done to you. And you can go and live a new life in Christ. So very important question. Do you agree with what God says and does for you? Do you agree with God about yourself? I'm going to invite everybody to just lower your head, bow your head, close your eyes. And what I'd like to do, uh, there's times in scripture where the leader would just pray on behalf of the congregation or the group. And I'd like to do that. And I'd like to pray some prayers that are very much in keeping with what we've talked about. I would also say if you're here and you have never given your life to Christ in the way I've talked about today, Today is the day. Don't wait till tomorrow. Come today. Come up to the front. There'll be one of our leaders, Rick, is going to be up here. Rick would be honored to show you how to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Or if you want Rick to pray with you about anything, he'd be honored to do that. But right now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'd like to just pray for all of you. Prayers of healing. Prayers of cleansing. Let's pray. Oh, kind Father, thank you so much for sending the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you were willing to come, Lord Jesus. Thank you that in Christ, life is different. And so I would pray for this group of people that are here in the building, the people that are online this morning. I pray for them to come to the place where they are absolutely convinced that you are light and not darkness. That you have forgiven their sin. That you are not angry with them. You're opposed to sin, but you have forgiven their sin and you punish Jesus rather than them. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will scrub their souls clean. Help them to understand not only that they're forgiven, but to live in the freedom that they are cleansed. And so in Jesus' name now, I pray against the attacks and the lies of the evil one to try and convince them otherwise. I rebuke those lies in Jesus' name based on his authority. I send them to the place where Jesus would have them go. And instead, I invite you to descend healing and cleansing and that your spirit would fill them to overflowing and that they would serve with a sense of release, with a sense of peace that only comes from you. I pray these things now in the Jesus' precious name I pray.